Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, everybody. We're doing things a little differently today. It was the holiday season, and it was really just too challenging to get a hold of each other in our distant locations. And so we decided to bring you two stories of legendary ladies of the Wild West. First, Susan's going to cover the story of Calamity Jane, and then I will swing in halfway through the episode with the tale of Belle Star, the bandit queen of the Wild West. We're looking forward to separating fact from fiction as much as we ever can. And so, with no further ado, on with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. Martha Jean Canary was orphaned at 11, raised her five siblings, worked as a prostitute, an Indian scout, a soldier, and a stagecoach driver. She was a nurse during a smallpox epidemic. She loved and married Wild Bill Hickok, and she caught his murderer. She always wore men's clothing and got her nickname Calamity Jane from a military captain whose life she saved in battle. She was a star in Buffalo Pills' Wild West show, wrote her autobiography, lived her life hard, and however she wanted. Some of that's true. Most of that's a myth. Let's figure out which is which. Let's talk about Calamity Jane. Martha Canary was born probably on May 1st, 1856 in Princeton, Missouri. She was the first of probably six children of Robert and Charlotte Canary. Wow, that's two sentences and two probablys. It's going to be one of those stories, huh? <sighs> yes, yes it is. Later in her life, Calamity Jane would publish an autobiography. But by then, she had spent so many years lying, fabricating, and embellishing everything from her birth year to how many husbands she had and creating some very tall tales. Even she may have begun to believe the myths. George Costanza said it best. It's not a lie if you believe it, right? What makes her story even more mired in mystery is that it would be over 60 years after that autobiography before any serious study of her life began. Even the historians who wrote the several biographies about her that have been created since 1950s kind of vary on the details. Calamity Jane could very well be one of our fictional episodes, except there really was a woman behind it and she lived a very interesting life. Martha's father, Robert, had come from a family of farmers. Originally from Ohio, Martha's grandfather had moved the entire family westward to find more farmable land in newly opened Missouri. Well, nearly opened to the white settlers, but the land was good for farming. It was less expensive than in Ohio. So the whole family as a group, Robert, his sisters, his brother, they all traveled to Missouri via Iowa. And it was there in Iowa that the youngest of the four Canary siblings, Robert, met and married Charlotte Burke in 1855. Robert was 30. Charlotte was 15. Legend had it that Robert met his betrothed at a brothel where he had fallen head over giddy heels in love with this beautiful young woman. Nah, it's a great story, though, but probably not true. And if you're gasping at the age difference, did you know that there's only 17 states in the U.S. that flat out prohibit marriage of 15-year-olds? The rest of them have varying degrees of ifs. If a parent signs off, if a judge signs off, if she's pregnant. Hmm. But in 1855, it wasn't as big of a deal. With his new bride at his side, Robert, his father, his two sisters, and his brother, and their spouses, all moved about 100 miles south of where Charlotte had grown up to Princeton, Missouri. It's very close to the Iowa border. If you go to Des Moines and go south, you'll hit Princeton. Since they had left Ohio, Robert's mother had died. 
when they got to Missouri, his father, Grandpa James, bought 320 acres of prime farmland in Missouri. Then he turned around and broke up the land into smaller parcels and sold it to his kids at a reduced price, almost half of what he had paid for it. He's kind of like the zoo lily of real estate. Robert and Charlotte had their first baby, Martha, a year after they had wed. (laughs) You thought they got married because she's pregnant, didn't you? You'll see a lot of sources that give her middle name as Jane, but there doesn't seem to be any proof of that. You'll also see compelling arguments that this isn't Calamity Jane's origins at all, that she was a different Martha born in a different year to a different family. But the two main sources that I used spell out the many different views of her life. It's really cool if you don't mind reading a non-linear biography. All these different theories and reasonings and arguments, it's, you can see how much work goes into writing biographies by just reading two of the ones that I'm going to recommend later. Robert and Charlotte stair-stepped Martha with two other siblings, and a fourth was born after a census was taken. So he was not listed on a census. That's the only way we can pinpoint Martha Canary in Princeton, Missouri, is from a census that was taken in 1860. There are other two that Martha later talks about that were either A, figments of her imagination, probably not, or died in their early lives, more than likely. So that's where we get six kids from. But for our purposes, Martha has four siblings. For the first seven years of Martha's life, her grandpa James lived with the family and they all farmed and put a very low emphasis on education. Only Robert and his brother could read and write. Nobody else in the family could. Martha may have attended a local school in a log cabin, but she only would have gone when she wasn't needed on the farm. And if she did, nothing she learned stuck. Martha was illiterate her entire life, and there isn't even any examples of her handwriting, not even a signature on a document to say that maybe she did know how to read or write. All signs point to no. Now, Martha did live through the Civil War, but other than some accounts of Charlotte being a, quote, secesh spitfire, meaning that she was pro-secession and a Confederate, there's no other inkling of what her husband thought or what Grandpa James thought. Where they lived in Missouri, (laughs) Missouri was a really fun state to be in during the Civil War because it kept going back and forth between Union State and Confederate State. It ended up having representatives to both the Confederate States and the Union States. But up in northern Missouri, where they were, it was mostly pro-Union. So Charlotte was a Confederate sympathizer. She probably wouldn't have been looked on too favorably. That might give you a hint about the stories that are told about her, what kind of a personality she had. There's repeated legends of her cussing, being very wild, smoking, drinking. There's accounts of her flirting with men. Once she rode a horse through the mud to a new mother's house. She threw a yardage of calico at the young woman and said, take that and make a dress for your dad bastard. Charlotte was, by all accounts, very energetic, very opinionated, and not one bit shy. She had alienated both of her husband's sisters, which kind of says, hmm, maybe she was a brash personality. These are only legends passed down from generation to generation, so the possibility of them happening are great. Up until Martha was six, she had a very ordinary, fairly stable life on the farm with Grandpa James and her parents and her siblings, but then the family's life was thrown into turmoil. Grandpa James died, and he left no will. (sighs) How many times do we hear this? 
So when he died without that will, the court appointed an executor who sued Robert for a loan that Grandpa James had made to Robert. And Robert refused to give up items of his father's that the executor believed belonged to the estate. Robert and Charlotte were in deep financial trouble because of this. And they sold off their land and left Missouri basically in the middle of the night, right ahead of legal troubles. That had to have been a really big life event for Robert because he had always moved with his family. They had always worked as a unit. And suddenly he and Charlotte are going off for the first time in his life. There's no family around. If you're broke, where do you head? You head for the hills. You go to Montana, the land of gold, right? The family probably traveled with others on a wagon train, and they all headed west. For five months, they traveled, and Martha had a grand time. She was energetic. She enjoyed riding horses. She became what she called herself a fearless rider. She went on the hunting expeditions with the men, and when the group had to lower wagons over ledges with ropes because the trails were so rough, and steep. Martha was all over this. This was a great adventure for her. It sounds horrible to us, but she is loving this time. She's outside. She's riding horses. She's shooting guns. She's hanging with the guys. This is her glory days, her glory five months. Now, the Canary family arrived in Virginia City, Montana, broke and hungry, but ready to work hard to make their fortune in gold. Unfortunately, they weren't alone. There were the largest percentage of travelers from Missouri to Montana to work the gold mines, but miners were flocking from everywhere. 5,000 people were packed into the Virginia City area, and a 1,000 more arrived the year that the Canaries did. Fortune was looking less and less likely by the day. There's too many people and not enough gold. There is actual newspaper report of Martha and two of her siblings begging for food. There's also rumors in that article that Robert was a gambler. Mm, Probably unlikely. He seemed very pragmatic. And Charlotte was a prostitute? Probably. Now, the family was very poor. Yes, she took in washing to make money, but they were going to need a lot more than just washing would provide. And the gold plan wasn't panning out. Literally. The people who made money in the gold rush towns were the service people, the grocers, the outfitters, the launderers, and the horse suppliers, and the prostitutes. However they supported themselves, within two years, they were back on the road again, and this time without Mama Charlotte. She died. I don't know how. It's not recorded. There's no record of her dying, no grave marker with her name. There's only evidence that Robert and his children headed south towards Utah. Chances are good that Robert had heard that the Mormons were caring and helpful and they could help his family. So they arrived in Salt Lake City, but shortly after they did, Robert died too. Martha was 11 and now an orphan with siblings to take care of. Now, legend will tell you that she raised those brothers and sisters by working in a brothel called the Birdcage. Really? A canary in the Birdcage? Yeah. Yeah, you have to write this stuff. (laughs) Uh, Those accounts are not true. The siblings were probably adopted out to area families, although Martha's didn't actually stick. And if we thought that the few life details in the first 11 years of Martha's life were fuzzy, things turned downright fuzzy, foggy, and forgotten for the next five years. She probably lived with one family until she was 14 or 15, and then she would have gone off on her own, hopping between mining towns to railroad towns to military posts and doing whatever she had to do to survive. 
in her autobiography, she says just about that. Although she adds in that she was hanging out with General Custer as an Indian scout and giving up the dresses that a woman would wear for men's clothing, specifically soldier uniforms. We can finally place her in Piedmont, Wyoming, in a railroad town on another census. We know she was 13, but at the time, she added two years to her life. So she said she was 15. Usually we tell these stories and people shave years off how old they are. In this case, she added them because if she said she was a 13-year-old girl, a young teenager on her own, that's very dangerous. But adding a couple years, it gave her a little bit more street cred. And that's all she's got to go on at this point. On that census, when she was 13, but said she was 15, she worked in a boarding house doing odd jobs and was also known to have taken care of the children of the owner, which sounds really conventional. What a perfect job for a young teenager. (sighs) But she was also known to spend her nights dancing with soldiers, hanging out at the saloons, and indeed dressing in those soldier uniforms. Like when she was on the trail from Missouri to Montana. She preferred the company of men. She was very rude to women and may actually have earned some money selling herself. (sighs) She probably did. This is something that she has to fall back on for her entire life. She is a survivor. We have to remember that she's very young, no family, no one who cares for her, and she's got to make it in this world. She's going to have to do something And that's what she can do to make some money. Now, she did do some really, I mean, it wasn't that she was this hard partying teenager. She did some really kind things. She made sure that her siblings had a place to live. And she helped nurse her future brother-in-law back from a broken leg and then introduced him to her sister, his future wife. So that's nice, right? What we also know is that she didn't stay put very long. Her entire life is a series of her jumping from one small town to another, doing whatever she can, landing in another town, either getting kicked out or fleeing or looking for something better, just hopscotching all over the West. Now, when she was 19, she resurfaced again. The U.S. government had commissioned a geological expedition to the Black Hills of Wyoming. There were reports of gold, and this group, called the Jenny Expedition, after the head geologist that was leading them, was sent to verify it. Why? Uh, To further justify stealing the land away from the Native Americans who, you know, live there already. Okay, we always take the perspective of the woman that we're talking about. But it has to be said, Martha should be considered the enemy in this story, who she considers the the enemy were people just protecting their land and themselves from invasion. And she is part of the invading forces. I had to say that to get it out of the way. That's what's going on here. While she was on this expedition, there was a journalist from the Chicago Daily Tribune who was embedded in the expedition, his job to report about it. And it's then that we get an actual article and the first recorded use of her nickname. He wrote in his article, Callum is dressed in a suit of soldier's blue and straddles a mule equal to any professional black snake swinger in the army. Now, I'd like to be able to report exactly what a black snake swinger is, but um, I had to clear my search history after I looked for it. It was kind of like the time I learned that you have to add sporting goods when you're looking for the closest dick store. Yeah, it's like that. So if you know what the G-rated version of a black snake swinger is, please post it on our social media because I would really love to know without getting linked to some sites I don't want to be on. Anyway, also in that article, she is described as this, quote, she has the reputation of being a better horseback rider, mule and bullwhacker, and a more unctuous coiner of English 
and not the queen's pure either than any man in the command. <laughs> there was actually an accompanying photo of this cussing woman. It's a photo of Calamity Jane at 19 wearing a men's shirt and pants and neckerchief and boots and hat. She's reclining on a pile of rocks with her legs crossed in a pose that you could double with a movie star on a chaise lounge. But she's just reclined on the rocks. I loved it. Okay, so she's working as a laundress. She's a camp follower, so that means she's probably working as a prostitute. So we know now that at 19, she already had the nickname Calamity Jane, but where did it come from? The story that Calamity, as I'll call her now, told is that she was riding in a military regiment whose mission was to quell an uprising of the Indians. One day they were ambushed and she managed to ride up and catch the captain of the group as he was shot and falling off his horse. She brought him back to safety and the next day he said, I name you Calamity Jane, the heroine of the plains. Great story. Not true. Okay, how about this version? She was given the name after nursing people during a smallpox epidemic. She was the angel in their calamity. Lovely. But that event actually happened after she had her nickname. Okay. Was it because when she lost a card, she'd say, what a calamity? Or was it because calamity befelled some of her bedfellows and they mysteriously died? No and no. How about this? Her life was a calamity. Trouble followed her at every move. And Jane? Jane was a common nickname for women. It's probably as simple as that. There are actually several other calamity Janes in the U.S. West history. And they were all women like our girl who lived hard lives, were a little eccentric, and they all drank a lot. I know, it's not as good of a story, is it? This is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what the life of calamity Jane was actually like. Now, this is what's happening at this time in Calamity Jane's life. The U.S. government had opened up the Black Hills to settlement, much to the dismay of the Native Americans whose land it was. Those Native Americans were required by the U.S. government to live in specific areas and not to hunt or travel elsewhere. The U.S couldn't possibly enforce this kind of rule without military action. Jane was a part of the troops that were sent to shepherd the Native Americans back to their assigned reservations. Originally, the Black Hills area was part of one of those reservations, but once gold was discovered and verified, the government took backsies. And the campaign that Calamity was following was part of the government's attempt to exercise their authority over the Native Americans. Instead, they got spanked. The regiment that Calamity was with failed in their mission, but at the same time in another group, a more famous situation happened when General Custer and his troops battled at Little Bighorn. And if you know anything about your history, that's what did General Custer in. After following the group, and yes, by following, she's doing anything she can. She's not a member. She's not on any roster. She's not a member of the army. She's cleaning clothes. She's schlepping materials from one camp to another. She's helping nurse injured soldiers. And yes, she's servicing the soldiers as well. That's the PG version. 
all Wild West tales have brushes with the law, and Calamity was no exception. After the failed attempts in the Black Hills, she was charged with, and this is big, grand larceny for stealing clothing from another woman of negotiable affections. She was arrested and jailed, where she remained in jail for two weeks <laughs> before she was released after being found not guilty at her trial. How's that? Kind of dull, huh? But let's unpack that just a little bit more so we can bust another myth. She was accused of stealing women's clothes. Wait, what? She was always seen in men's clothes, right? A soldier's uniform, a scout's togs. Wrong. She's always seen in the pictures we see in men's clothing. But the reality is that she was wearing women's clothes a great deal of the time. Of the very few surviving photographs, there's the 20-something. A very small percentage of them are her in men's clothing. All the rest... She looks like every other pioneer woman. Hard life around her eyes and a dirty black dress on her body. But that's kind of boring, right? I mean, compared to a woman dressed as a man, which is riveting. It's all marketing, people. It's branding and spin. And I hope by this point, at the halfway point, you realize that that's what her life is like. Now, don't get me wrong. She gets all my admiration for flipping off the patriarchy. She was wearing clothes fitting for her activities. Societal expectations be damned. But she didn't do it all the time. After being released from jail, Calamity went on a saloon-hopping bender to celebrate. It took her from Cheyenne, Wyoming to Fort Laramie, Wyoming, which is about 100 miles to the north. When she woke up in a whole nother town and got her hangover under control, she took up her camp-following ways. And that's how she landed in a lot of these places, just purely by accident. She'd spend this time later in her life to say she was on scouting missions for the army, but really she wasn't. She was, again, following the camp and more than likely got tossed out for her behavior. And that's what she does, right? It seems pretty indicative of her entire life. Struggle, land somewhere, survive, get bounced someplace else, repeat. The next place where she bounces is the one where she's going to stay for a while and the one that we associate with her a lot, Deadwood, South Dakota. And one of the people that she met right at the very beginning is one of the most famous in her life and one of the biggest tall tales. Now, by sheer coincidence, Calamity found herself in the same wagon train heading to Deadwood as James Butler, Wild Bill Hickok. The legend has her riding into Deadwood with Wild Bill and his pals. And yeah, the reality is she did ride into town with them in the same group, but any relationship beyond acquaintance was fabricated either by Calamity or by reporters later in her life. Wait, what? She didn't meet Wild Bill Hickok and fall madly in love and fall into his bed? No, she didn't. Hickok was newly married. He was out on the road to make money to support his wife. And he was, quite frankly, too fastidious to have used Calamity's services. Yes, they ran in separate circles that joined in the Venn diagram of this ride into Deadwood. But they were not the close acquaintances that they're made out to be. I know, kind of disappointing, right? They did know each other, and they may have been friends, but not great friends. She probably admired him a great deal, and she was in the saloon on the day that he got shot, but she wasn't there when he got shot, which is the legend, and she did not chase down his killer and bring him back for justice. That did not happen. But what did happen is she grieved his death deeply, and only somebody who's close to somebody else or who admires somebody else a great deal is going to do that, especially in this life that she lives, where people 
people are coming and going all the time. Because of her big personality and her hard drinking, hard dancing, hard living exploits, she had a habit of being in the wrong place at the right time. Now, at this point in history, Americans outside of the West were really romanticizing life of the Wild West. They were fascinated by it. They couldn't get enough stories. And reporters were flocking to the West to get these stories. They couldn't help but notice Calamity Jane in the town. They couldn't help but notice her. She was great copy. She was entertaining. She was great to write about. If not for a couple things, she probably would have faded into obscurity at this point. But first, because of these reporters, she first appeared in a nonfiction series about the Black Hills in that she was paired with Wild Bill Hickok and she was portrayed as a man dressing scout for the army. That image in that particular nonfiction series was captured in fictional ones, specifically dime novels by novelist Edward Wheeler made Calamity Jane a character in his books. She was a sure shot with both a gun and a whip. She was a heroine in this fictionalized Wild West whose job was to bring order and justice to the wild, wild West. Even the cover of one of these books says, quote, Calamity Jane, the heroine of whoop up. (laughs) I want to be the heroine of whoop up. But of course, of course, the reality was different. I mean, uh, these novels and lots of other fiction portray this area of Deadwood as being this violent, high murder, one and a half murders a day, just this extremely lawless time, like constant purge. But in reality, there were only 34 murders in a three-year period during this time. So yes, it was dangerous. It was very dangerous for anyone. It was more dangerous for a woman. And there was murders, but not one and a half a day. That is, that's two months. So while fictional Calamity Jane was scaling cliffs and fighting Indians, yes, it's the lingo of the time, you have to remember that, the real Calamity Jane was living what probably was the most ordinary portion of her life in Deadwood. I keep wanting to say Deadpool. I even wrote Deadpool in my notes a few times. I know. She did settle down in Deadwood a little bit. Uh, She became considered a resident rather than a drifter. Yes, she didn't like clean up her life. She worked as a dance hall girl. Yes, that's another euphemism. She worked as an actual dancer and an actual waitress. And she was in many saloon fights and had many drunken nights. But let's focus on another side of her because she is a multidimensional person. She was known as having a caring heart, not the overextended, you know, prostitute with a heart of gold, but a real version of that. She did help nurse the sick during a smallpox epidemic. She helped nurse children in a specific family when the whole family came down with diphtheria. Half of those children died, but the family still looked upon her with so much regard for having come in to try and help them. She was asked to care for a very proper lady in town by her family. And when she went to visit this woman, she always wore dresses. She didn't smoke during this time. She didn't swear. She didn't drink for several weeks. I know it doesn't sound like much, but for a woman like this, it's a big deal. She didn't do any of those things until her services with this very proper woman were no longer needed. And she even got married. 
Okay, there's a lot of myth about how many marriages she had, and quite frankly, we don't know. She had at least one that there's proof of with a man named Bill Steers and actually had a daughter named Jessie with him. Of course, nothing in her life can be ordinary. They had a very volatile relationship. They separated frequently, and he was very abusive to her, and they also married after Jessie was born. But that's as much convention as a woman like this can be expected to have, right? She did want to be a wife. She did want to be a mother. She wanted these things, but they didn't last. She and Bill did divorce, and one colorful version has him abandoning her. And when the judge at the divorce hearing asked why, she said, because I was after him with an axe. Okay, and what happened to Jessie? Well, some versions tell you that she was adopted out. Some leave her out altogether. But there seems to be a lot of proof that she remained with Calamity Jane for years. That Calamity Jane was responsible for raising her. Yes, she did rely on other people because having a life like Jane had is not conducive to being a very good mother. But she was with her and she supported her. Now, this is where there's other reports of marriages, but there really is no proof. The most important one is a man named Clinton Burke. Why is it important? She signed her autobiography, Mrs. M. Burke. She claimed that they were married. There's no paper proof of it. When Calamity Jane looked up from her fairly ordinary life, she saw a new opportunity. While she was getting married and having a baby and living her life in the West, she or her image, had become famous, not only in those dime novels, but other novels, other books, other articles. They all grabbed a hold of her name and used her as an example of the brave and bold women of the growing West. Now, she had begun to see touring companies of entertainers come about. They had all spun off popularity of P.T. Barnum's shows. Just a few years before this, Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show had made a bundle at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Calamity didn't sign with Buffalo Bill, nor did she sign with P.T. Barnum, but she did sign with a small troupe for eight weeks at 50 bucks a week, which comes out to about $1,518 per week. She toured. She went from Minneapolis to Chicago. And what was her act? She told stories. The publicity photos showed her with a knife in her mouth and portrayed her as extremely dangerous. But her act was her wearing scout garb and telling stories, telling these tall tales. She wasn't dangerous at all, but she was very colorful. She spun a good yarn. She understood her branding and she worked from there. She just told her stories. Now, she wasn't in a troupe, a Wild West troupe. She was in a troupe with performers like Snake Charmers and the Tattooed People and fake Siamese twins. She was just another act in one of these traveling museums of the time. But why was she working? It seems as though she was working so that she could make money to put her daughter through school in Deadwood. How about that? She toured for about four months and she left the show because her daughter was sick and she wanted her mother. Simple as that. She stopped touring at this point for a while and she went back to her life. Yes, there's salooning and debauchery, but it was as normal as it's going to get for her. When she was 40, she dictated, remember she's illiterate, she dictated her autobiography. What it was was a pamphlet to attract people to another touring show she was in. The autobiography worked to attract people, but she didn't like touring. So she decided to branch off on her own. Not a surprise, she never did work with people 
over her, bossing her around. She really worked best on her own and with her own schedule and her own motivations. So she branched off on her own and she toured around the West selling her autobiography for 15 cents, pictures of her for a dime, and telling her stories. If she had married Burke, at this point, she dropped him and picked up with another man of dubious employment. <laughs> but again, there's no proof. And at 45, she stopped touring on her own and joined another show, Colonel Fred Cummings' Indian Congress. She was to appear at the 1901 Pan American Exhibition in Buffalo, New York. She was really popular. She appeared with Apache warrior Geronimo. Actually, at the 1901 Pan Am Expo, she crossed paths with another History Chick favorite, Episode 20, Nellie Bly. Nellie was there as the head of the ironclad manufacturing company. She had been widowed and left this business by her husband. <laughs> Nellie was handing out these seriously braggadocious metal business cards. Uh, <laughs> there's no evidence that the two women had met. But hey, most of Calamity Jane's life is a lie anyway. So can't we make up a story where they did meet? And you know what? There probably couldn't be two women at the time who understood more what people were looking for from them and gave it. But being out east wasn't where Calamity was comfortable. So she headed back west. Now, in all of this, you may have noticed that I didn't mention her traveling with Buffalo Bill show. That's because she didn't. But he may have given her train fare back to Wyoming from New York, and she probably blew that on a bender in Chicago and then needed to hustle up some money so that she could get back to Wyoming. <laughs> when she finally did get back to the Black Hills, she took a job as a cook and a laundress at a brothel and resumed her hard life. She was an alcoholic and often drank her paycheck for many years. In 1903, Calamity Jane was not well. She was living on a diet of whiskey. Her body was giving out. She died on August 1st, 1903, technically of inflammation of the bowel, but no one will argue that it wasn't alcoholism that killed her. She was 47 years old. But she couldn't even be buried without controversy. Her body was sent to Deadwood, accompanied by a few friends. And as the group traveled, it grew as they passed people who knew her and wanted to pay their respects. There's stories of them leaving the wagon outside of saloons so that the entire group could go in the saloon and have a drink, presumably, in her memory. Her body actually lay in state for a few days with a wire screen over her head to keep people from clipping her hair. They wanted a souvenir of her. That's how famous she was. Her funeral was held in Deadwood at the Deadwood Methodist Church. And I'm wondering if that might have been her first time in a church because that's the first time it was mentioned in the entire story. Now, she is buried in Mount Moriah Cemetery in Deadwood next to... Bill Hickok. Why? Mm. Maybe it was because of her last wishes, and maybe it was done by the fine people of Deadwood, knowing that it would be a tourist attraction in the future. Even her headstone isn't right. They <laughs> Even her headstone keeps up a myth, calls her Mrs. M.E. Burke, and her headstone lists that she was 53 when she died, when in actuality, she was 47. Now, her myth from that point kind of became canon because of the obituaries that were written across the country. You know, obituaries, you expect them to be filled with facts, right? So they wrote these stories based in great part by her autobiography and the tales that she was telling. Yeah, there was a lot of fact mixed in there, but just became so confusing that the myth was easier to accept than the reality. And then as time wore on, there was more books and plays and movies that have grabbed a hold of that myth and spun it into a legacy. Now, 
not for media. Okay. As for books, I'm going to recommend three books. I do recommend, and I'll give you a link to Project Gutenberg, where you can read The Life and Adventures of Calamity Jane by herself. And like I had said earlier, it was really a pamphlet, and it will take you less than 10 minutes to read. <laughs> it begins, my maiden name is Marthy Canary, and ends, yours, Mrs. M. Burke. Hmm. And now, as far as fact goes, the two books that I would recommend, Life and Legends of Calamity Jane by Richard W. Etulian. I think that's right. And Calamity Jane, The Woman and the Legend by James D. McLaird. Now, that book was published in 2005. The first one I recommended was the most recent, and it was published in 2014. They are kind of parallel in the information. But what I loved about both of these books is they presented all the myths that are out there and they argued them, you know, why couldn't this have happened? Why could this might have happened? Why is this probable from everything from her birth date on to her death? They're unlike a lot of biographies that you read that can give you a nice linear story. It's linear, but there's a lot of ups and downs and twists in the middle, which make it really fun. Okay, as for media, there was the 1937 The Plainsman's, a Cecil B. DeMille movie starring Gary Cooper and Gene Arthur. Um, these and a lot of the early movies that are out there, I just didn't watch because I know that they are going to be, in my eye, racist towards the Native American people. I realized that was the time that they were done and that once we knew better, we did better. But I just really don't like watching it. Ditto Calamity Jane with Doris Day. That one I had seen. It was from 1953. It has her as an Indian scout and sets up a love triangle between her and an actress and Bill Hickok. There's miscommunication. And in the end, Jane marries Bill. There's a happily ever after. There's even a Cinderellification of Jane in there. It's a musical. So if you like your classic 50s musicals, Doris Day is just, she can't be greedy enough ever to play the real Calamity Jane. But, you know, that's a famous one. There's a 1995 Wild Bill with Ellen Barkin as Jane and Jeff Bridges as Hickok. And again, there's a romantic aspect to that one. And again, there's a romantic aspect to that one, but it's not a documentary and it's not streaming on Netflix, Amazon Prime or Hulu. So if you want to watch it, you're going to have to look far. Now there is HBO's Deadwood, which I also didn't see. I'm so sorry. Usually I at least watch a few episodes, but I didn't watch any of these. I understand that they call her Martha cannery in this particular show, which I'm wondering if anybody out there is listening go, you've been saying canary. But Deadwood says cannery. That's why. I didn't watch it. But if you did, why don't you share a review of it with us on Twitter or either our public Facebook page or our private group, the History Chicks Podcast Lounge. Now, as for museums, Deadwood, South Dakota is a lot of museum. <laughs> There's a museum that features four properties and Calamity Jane is featured in them. So if you find yourself in South Dakota, I'll post a link in the show notes. It's deadwoodhistory.com. Um, there's no virtual tours, but if you just go there, you can see quite a few pictures and get a feel for what the area is like if you can't get to South Dakota. But wait, don't touch that dial. Let's talk about Belle Star, the bandit queen of the Wild West. And here's your 30-second summary. She was born a fine lady with a ferocious temper and a broken moral compass, who was beloved and loathed in equal measure, and after her death, became famous beyond her wildest dreams. The end.
Myra Maybell Shirley was born on February 5, 1848, the third child of the six children of John and Elizabeth Pennington Shirley, though Papa had another son from a previous marriage. Papa grew up in Kentucky, where from a young age he got a name for himself breeding horses, which I can tell you is still a major industry in Kentucky. Most books will imply that he was the black sheep in some kind of highfalutin family. There is a famous Shirley Plantation in Virginia. I have yet to find verifiable details that he came right from that plantation. But as to the black sheep, let's just point to the fates of some of his children. More on that later. Mama had also come from an upper-class background, as we can deduce from her manners and tastes, and really she was very cultivated artistically and had great musical abilities. However, here is an odd claim to fame. Mama was some sort of cousin to the Hatfields of the Hatfields and McCoys. Let us call that the anger management failure inheritance for our friend May. Right after they married, the Shirleys took up farming on, let's call it a medium scale, just outside of the town of Carthage, Missouri, with the help of their slaves. Oh yes, slaves. Papa was a man known for his eloquent defense of the peculiar institution of slavery, and his economic well-being was very tied up in it, too. May, as the family called our subject, grew up in a house with plenty of material goods, with a father so respected in the neighborhood that he was called Judge Shirley. No verifiable judgeship officially has ever been found. And a mother who was sort of the belle of local society. What is Mrs. Shirley wearing? The local ladies all wanted to know. They wanted to imitate the way her table was set, her refined manners. She was an aspirational role model, an influencer if you will. And Mama did attempt to pass these attributes on to her daughter, May, elocution lessons, piano lessons, and a fine and expensive elementary education at the elite Carthage Female Academy, which wasn't, as you might think, just a needlepoint and drawing school. We've seen so many of those finishing schools before, but Latin, Greek, mathematics, literature. She got a very well-rounded education. We are so trying to make little May into a fine lady. But what May loved more than anything was to tramp the woods with her brother Bud. He was six years older and as near to a hero as a small girl can manufacture. Their relationship reminds me so much of Buddy and Idgy Threadgood from Fried Green Tomatoes. I love it. Well, he taught her to shoot, to hunt, to trap, to fish, how to track animals and people. All of this in an era when the sight of a woman running might give a refined lady the vapors. What an uncommon lady she was, even from an early age. One of the very first folkloric tales in a lifetime of exaggerations, believe me, is the unverifiable story of 10-year-old May riding hell for leather down the streets of Carthage, shooting pistols into the air and yelling her head off to the fond amusement of passersby, which might say more about Southern Missouri than about May herself. Hey, look, Pa, a fifth grader just rode by here shooting deadly weapons into the air. Well, my goodness, how entertaining. That's not something you see every day. Okie dokie. It was about this time, the time of the fabled Pistola incident, that Papa bought a hotel and tavern right on the main square in the town, and the family moved into what they called 
the Shirley House. Mama redecorated up the cuisine to the point where respectable travelers like circuit court judges and refined locals alike congregated there as a matter of course, as well as less legitimate travelers, those on the run from the law, those on the run from people they had wronged, people looking around for bad things to do. You got all kinds over there at the Shirley House. It was the place to be. Papa had May play the piano at the tavern, and I am just reminded of Ma Ingalls. Do you remember in Little Town on the Prairie when Pa asked Laura, how'd you like a job in town? And Ma was horrified lest her daughter be exposed to who knows what in a hotel. I think some of that prudence would have been justified here because May spent the formative years of her young womanhood among transient strangers, if not flat-out ne'er-do-wells. The route to proper young Victorian womanhood we saw was bent before wah. Now it's just a U-turn. She was not so much beautiful or pretty, but very attractive. She was very self-assured. I imagine she gave as good as she got if someone sassed her. And something about her, she could just hold a room. Papa's tavern was a place everyone from about 150 miles around would end up. And of course, like any tavern, the topic of conversation was politics. But in this case, in these years, right before the Civil War, what are people talking about all over the tavern? Damn Yankees, mostly. And how dare they interfere with our way of life, etc. How dare they tell us what to do? Surely we all know the drill and how the South felt right before the Civil War. She is just swirling in the air of all of this Southern machismo and anger and bitterness. And long before war broke out, when May was even 13, she was a staunch Confederate supporter, for sure. Over the next couple of years, Brother Bud was recruited for his superior tracking skills, his woodsman persona, by no less than William Quantrill himself. Partisan groups like Quantrill's were authorized by the Confederacy. They were called bushwhackers. And that sounds sort of Crocodile Dundee-like. Delightfully cartoony, doesn't it? But what they are, bushwhackers, is really vicious guerrilla fighters who, before the war broke out, thought it was super fun to be vigilantes trolling the woods for runaway slaves. And I'm not wanting to be in the position of any slave that they found. The bushwhackers had a reputation for being especially vicious. And that's all I'm going to say about that. I'm sorry to say that the very gang that Bud was involved with was responsible for an infamous raid about just 30 miles from here in Lawrence, Kansas, where they massacred every man and boy in the town. These are not Boy Scouts. And I'll give you a link to the Quantrill's raid. It's pretty famous around here, but I'm not sure that people outside of the KC metro area have ever heard of it. So May, as a young woman, could not really get involved officially, but she was just aching to get involved. At first, she just kept her ear to the ground. Taverns, of course, being very gossipy places. Who's moving where? Are there strangers around? Etc. But by the time she was only 16, Quantrill and Bud and friends relied on her to ride through the night and deliver war intelligence. And I was so appalled by this. And then I checked myself because in a previous show, we have literally admired Sybil Lettington for doing the exact same thing, quote, 
on the good guy side during the Revolutionary War. So 16-year-old girls have been involved. They have ideals too. So I need to, I guess, let go of my shock that they would send her to do these things. And May went over and over through enemy territory, facing what has to be real danger to her person. I'm not entirely sure she was ever afraid of anything. I think maybe she was missing the one gene or hormone that would express the emotion of fear because in her whole story, there doesn't seem to be an example of it. The word is during her trips, sometimes she played frightened Southern Belle when she was caught. Sometimes she was dressed as a man and occasionally she would just give the soldiers a punch in the ding ding. (laughs) The adrenaline of this was just like a drug to her. Papa had either lost control, which is my guess, or is very proud of her working for the Glorious South. And May saved her brother Bud's life by riding 35 miles ahead of federal troops through side roads. They took the main road so they knew where they were going. They were on their way to kill him. And she managed to get to him in time to get him out of town. It worked the first time. But her information couldn't overcome treachery. Bud was tricked by a friend into an ambush. This is when she started to wear the pistols in shoulder holsters to be prepared for what she needed to do by way of revenge. And folklore says that May let it be known throughout the territory that she would marry the man, whatever man, who killed her brother's assassin. Let's put a pin in that. As if the death of his son wasn't enough... The war was not going well for the Confederacy in general, and like many of his fellow slaveholders and secessionists, Papa packed up his family and settled in Texas, ultimately on some land just outside of Dallas. I can imagine that the road out with reluctant teenagers complaining the whole way was not awesome. May heartily resented being removed from the scene of so much excitement. The mood got worse when the news came down that, yes, the North had made it to Carthage and they had set the town on fire, including the hotel and tavern. Everything they owned back at home was gone. Taxes for the Shirley family was quite a come down from the gentility and social power they'd had at home. And Papa was just full of resentment toward the North. Mama sunk into a giant depression. Just a quick note here, although it happens a little later on May's three younger brothers before we move on, Edwin became a horse thief and was shot at the age of 16. Mansfield was killed in a gunfight with law enforcement at 15. Cravens disappeared at a young age. Everyone just assumed he was dead. This move to Texas ruined this family. So the resentment is really kind of justified from their perspective. May is quoted as saying around this time, my life is a wreck. A great necessity is within me. I must either drift high upon the waves of notoriety or sink into the level of common life. The latter I can never do. She was looking around for her path in life in this new world she was dumped into the middle of. Papa opened a new tavern and it, just like the one in Carthage, became the territorial hub for this kind of general resentment after the war was over. Surely the South would rise again. That was the hope. That was the dream. These roving bands of young men, the bushwhackers, the guerrilla fighters, were still agitating against Northern interests. Today, we'd call them terrorists. And a lot of just plain folk from the South were all about them. Whatever you can do to make our old enemies pay, whatever, we'll support you. Money, hiding places, food, 
what do you need? And who is hanging around this tavern? Jesse James, the Younger Gang, the Dalton Brothers. You cannot bring hot villains around your impressionable daughters. Within a very short period of time, May was running around with Cole Younger, famous for bank, train, and stagecoach robberies. Maybe you should give your daughter's first boyfriend, the one with the blue hair, perhaps, or the suspicious leather jacket, a little more leeway, because what did Mama and Papa have to deal with now? Soon she was riding out with the younger gang, probably in men's clothes, and if she didn't commit any actual crimes, that's a big old asterisk, if she didn't commit the actual crimes, she was certainly crime adjacent for months. And now let's take a little break. And when we come back, we will see how our life of crime, true crime, began. back. At 18, she married a man named Jim Reed. It was true love. So the story goes. Or was Jim Reed the one that took care of Bud's killer and thus May fulfilled her promise and married him? History will never know. He was an old acquaintance from the Missouri days, a fellow Quantrill Raider with Bud. And oh, was this situation full of folklore. Story number one, she ran away with Jim Reed, fugitive from justice already, less than 24 hours after he showed up there in Texas, and they were married on horseback on the open prairie. Can you see it? The preacher on a horse, the bride and groom in the middle of a bunch of dirty rascals alternating between watching and spitting tobacco over the other side of the horses. Romantic. That's the picture you'll see. That's the story that was bandied about. Story two, he was working around the farm not even yet wanted by the federal government for anything, and he became a salesman of farm equipment back in his hometown of Rich Hill, Missouri. Ho-hum. I'm just here to say that if I myself were a dime novelist of the time, trying to sell my books, story one has a lot more juice in it. May's first child was born, Rosie Lee Reed, who she called her Little Pearl, and soon everyone just called her Pearl, Pearl Reed, although the word went around that Pearl was really the daughter of first boyfriend Cole Younger, a fact he denied for the entirety of his life, even though in her teen years, Pearl used the last name Younger. Mystery upon mystery. The straight and narrow was very hard for a guy who's lived through the exciting days of bushwhacking and outlawing, and soon Mr. Reed got to gambling drinking, and general wasteling. May also found it hard to adjust to settled married life, and so May sang as an entertainer in saloons nearby in Dallas. Riding home, she took to wearing her stage costume with two guns in a shoulder holster. It was the beginning of her branding, although I am not 100% sure that Mama was excited about the use to which her expensive music lessons was being put. Jim Reed started openly raiding with a gang led by a Cherokee bad guy named Tom Starr. Cattle wrestling, 
Theft of equipment, robbery, you name it, they were into it. My educated wife can keep our books, said Jim Reed. Again, May is crime adjacent. She couldn't go herself because she was pregnant again or else maybe she would have. Here's another story from about this time. A local doctor was impugning her reputation. What sort of lady goes to a saloon at all, much less gets up on a stage? Well, if there was one thing that May was very, very sensitive about, it was her status as a lady. She was very insistent upon being given the respect that one might give to a lady, even though she swore with the best of them. Not typically the hallmark of the classic Victorian lady. So the doctor dared to question her status as a lady, and she made him, at gunpoint, kiss a horse's butt in front of the whole town and told him that's what he was. <laughs> Those are the actions of a lady. I think it's in Emily Post. So while her husband was gone, um, Papa staked her a livery stable as a business that she could run. She was a noted horsewoman, and she started what I'm going to call horse laundering. When an outlaw stole a horse and needed to unload said horse, he would often bring it to May for careful transfer of ownership. Let's put it that way. So Mr. Reed was a wanted man. At this point, due to all of his other activities, he had had to skedaddle. Do you like my Wild West words? He had to skedaddle out to the Indian Territory, which is what one did when the government was after you for something. You would hightail it across the border into Indian Territory, where technically they couldn't get you unless they were in hot pursuit of you. It was his murder of a couple of men who were included in a family feud, their friend killed his brother, so he was going to kill them, and they were going to kill him, blah, 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 that bumped him up in the priority stakes for law enforcement. And deputies started to search for him specifically. Jim Reed had to take May and Little Pearl all the way to California, where he thought he'd be out of reach of repercussions. May loved it there. Who wouldn't? The weather the freedom of a fresh start. She had her son, little Edwin, who they called Eddie, and some optimism for the future. She wrote back home, I guess we'll make a permanent home here. I'm perfectly satisfied. In a few years, we can have as lovely of a place as this state could ever boast of. They spent two years there, and it was the happiest she'd ever been. And they were really improving their property and living a good life. But... Au contraire, for the future happiness of the Reed family in California, because Jim was recognized. That pesky law enforcement, he had to head back to Indian Territory to hide from prosecution. And May and the kids, who really couldn't make it without him, had to make their way alone back to Texas. Papa gave her a piece of his land, and she went back to her saloon entertainment, livery stable income stream. But Mr. Reed was everywhere. His exploits were legendary. Rumors and gossip placed May in men's clothes at the scene of a couple of his more nefarious crimes, torturing a man and his wife by stringing them up and half suffocating them repeatedly, bringing them down, asking a question. They didn't answer. Where is the box of money? Pull him back up in the tree until they were almost dead and pull him down again. It was horrible and prolonged torture. I should say... First of all, that that money is actually a quarter of a million dollars in today's money and that the torture-y had stolen it in the first place. It hadn't been his to keep a secret or give it away or anything. Such is the Wild West. 
It is just super wild. It does seem hard that the wife has to pay in all that scenario. There was no proof that May was there at all in men's clothes, although that was, quote, common knowledge. But hey, May showed up with all these expensive racehorses right after this incident. There's some circumstantial evidence that at least her husband was on the premises. May was also supposedly at the scene of a fatal stagecoach robbery. It became extremely hard for May to hold on to any shred of respectability, which was very important to her. Although she was a woman who could drink anyone under the table and would shoot towards you, if not at you, exactly, when you said something that irritated her. All with an ostrich feather in her hat. And her pinky up, mind you. (laughs) But there's no real evidence that she was involved in any actual criminal activities herself, other than being married to the area's most notorious outlaw and benefiting from the booty. Her house was also, just like Papa's Tavern had been, a great meeting place for the neighborhood 'er ne'er-do-wells. Local concerned citizens, many of them women, complained about her to the magistrates and the governor, which led to a lot of harassment. She's harboring gangs over there on the property. Lewd behavior was hinted at. Let me quote from the letter. Dear Governor Koch, For several years past, Dallas County, Texas, and vicinity has been noted of a place of resort for horse thieves, desperados, and other bad characters. This woman is no less celebrated in such exploits than her notorious paramour. (laughs) Which seems like a funny word to call someone's husband. For such characters, the latch string of the home of this family has ever hung out. And as courier and co-worker of the band, Mrs. Reed has done them good service, often donning male attire to ride hundreds of miles to warn them of pending danger. Which doesn't exactly seem like you're just tattletailing on someone for having too long of grass in their lawn, but that seems to be what she thought it was. Just needless chitter-chatter about her and her family. You better stop bad-mouthing me or I'll have any one of my, quote, 'er ne'er-do-wells burn your house down and see how you like it. One of her harshest critics, store just burned down right after she delivered that message around the town. What a co-inky-dink. Of course, she was arrested for arson, but in the days before everyone had surveillance, they couldn't make anything stick. There was no proof. She was found transporting a stolen horse. And I think it's a surprise that it took this long with her livery stable slash horse laundry operation. And hooray, as far as the town goes, she was sent to jail. Folklore will tell you she seduced the jailer and he released her. The stories add spice by saying the jailer was fired for the affair. So how is she just walking around afterward then? This doesn't add up. One writer put her early release down to plausible deniability. She couldn't be proven to have known the horse was stolen, so they had to let her go. I know, it's so much more boring. Jim Reed himself was killed in an ambush, betrayed by a friend, seems like a theme with the men in her life, who wanted the reward money. Morris, this man's name, thought he had this money in the bag, but May was as cool as a cucumber when the authorities came to get her to claim his body. That's not my husband, she said. So she thwarted the reward process. Curiously, Morris later was killed by an unknown assailant shortly afterward. Just leaving that there. Now, Papa surely died and the household sort of broke up. 
Mama took May's two children to Dallas so that they could go to school. And May moved out and she ended up near Galena, Kansas, where she parlayed her livery business into quite the string of relatively famous racehorses that always seemed to win their races. There was another man who had a famous racehorse and he decided that for publicity's sake, the only competitor he could race against was May and her famous horse. And so they set it up and May bet $500 that her horse would win. That's $12,000 in today's money. But then she told her jockey to throw the race just by a little don't win. Oh, ho, said the man with the other horse doing a victory lap around town. Oh, ho, I'm the best. Let forth the taps and drink all the whiskey of the land. You know, that kind of thing. She let that simmer a while and acted all mad. I'm going to have revenge. I need a rematch. And this time I'm going to raise the stakes. It'll be $5,000. That's $120,000 on one race. There is some money floating around in criminal activity in the Wild West that I don't even know how to fathom. <laughs> but anyway, he took the bait. He raced his horse. The jockey didn't pull any punches and won handily. And it ruined the other racehorse breeder forever and got him out of the business. So May, newly rolling in gold, met and may have married a man named Bruce Younger, who is the uncle of her first boyfriend, Cole. History is a little vague on the legal ramifications of their union. They did live together in the hotel in Galena, Kansas for a time. She was described as haughty and ladylike, and I quote, not at all a rough and shrill person like you read in the papers. Still, she could work a room. Still, she drew the admiration of even people who didn't approve of her behavior, once they met her, they were kind of under her spell. On the marriage certificate, which is from Chitopa, Kansas, May took years off her age. Years. But I'm magic in that year before the internet could track you. So officially, according to the marriage certificate, she's only 23 instead of 32. Who needs plastic surgery when you can just take it off at the courthouse? <laughs> the whole thing is so weird, though. Because technically, they might have spent a few hours together. And three weeks later, she married a man named Sam Starr in a Cherokee ceremony. She changed her name to Belle Starr and moved to Indian Territory. It's like whiplash. What happened to Bruce? Well, his mummified body was later found in a cave. What happened to Bruce? I say again. Does the hair on the back of your neck stand up? Did no one ask these questions? Sam Starr wore his victim's dried earlobes as a necklace. So to say that Belle, as we're going to start to call her, had a taste for rough and violent romantic partners is to call it too mild. These are some scary men. I wouldn't even want to be in an elevator with one. And here she is marrying them. Belle went to Texas to pick up her kids, who were now aged 12 and 9, and bring them back to her new house about 50 miles from Fort Smith, Arkansas, a place that she named Younger's Bend. Why? Why not Star's Bend? Was this whole thing just a torch for her first boyfriend? I'm super confused. And no one knows. The Star residence became as most of her houses had been since time immemorial, a haven for assorted outlaws. Jesse James, that old friend from Missouri, once stayed for a month, in fact. But there was a new sheriff in town, actually a federal judge in town named Parker, and he sent 
hundreds of deputy U.S. marshals out into Indian territory, whose whole goal was to sweep through and vacuum up all of the men who were basically saying, Neener, you can't get me. I'm on the wrong side of the line. Oh, yes. In fact, we can, as a matter of fact. Don't worry. You'll get your day in court, but you must come and face justice. Oh, dear. And of course, Bell's house at Younger's Bend was a routine port of call for the marshals. It was the equivalent of a speed trap. Are <laughs> you running low on your quotas? Head on over to Younger's Bend, where you can surely pick up a couple of criminals. Well, and Bell Starr began to really oppose this judge. She would show up in his court either to defend, especially the Native Americans that were rounded up, or to pay for their defense if they couldn't afford it. Her point was, Judge, your men are just pulling them in and stringing them up. It's wrong. It also violated some treaties between the U.S. and the Indian nations. But that aside, there seemed to be a racist element to the roundup that she was not going to stand for. And this judge was nicknamed Hanging Judge Parker, a worthy foe. She became quite the attraction in the town of Fort Smith, riding side saddle in the finest velvet gowns she could purchase, with these crisscross shoulder holsters full of heat, pearl-handled derringers, a big sombrero with an ostrich feather in it, and a lot of attitude. Her association with known criminals and her fabulous devil-may-care attitude and appearance caused the press to start referring to her as, quote, the bandit queen of the Wild West. I mean, that's sort of a lot for a person who officially has never been convicted of anything. But okay, rather than get mad and sue for libel, she loved it. Finally, she was that famous person she'd hoped to be long ago when she was 16. Though reportedly, she horsewhipped a newspaper man who put a misleading caption on a photo of her and an accused murderer named Blueford Duck, implying that he was her lover. So publicity is okay. Implying you're involved with people, hurting your reputation as fundamentally a lady, that is going to get you in trouble. Oh, also, increased security by law enforcement can get you in trouble. The marshals found stolen horses in her stable. Surprise level zero, really, at this point. She and Sam both actually had to serve nine months in jail. And upon her return, she discovered that 17-year-old Pearl was pregnant. Knowing her mother, Pearl refused to say who the father was. That was very noble of her and may have saved his life. After she calmed down a little bit, Belle intercepted her daughter's letters and wrote to the boyfriend as if she was her daughter, saying she'd married a rich man in Kansas and he needed to forget about her. Her boyfriend, who she'd met at school, who was a nice young man, but not full of money or daring or anything, really genuinely was heartbroken and thought he'd been abandoned. Belle sent her daughter away to relatives to have the baby so that no one around town would know that it existed. That sort of interference is almost unforgivable, I think. Who knows what kind of life Pearl could have lived with the love of her life. Belle literally wrote to her daughter, yes, you can come home, but I never want to see that baby or hear about it ever again. A sister of Jim Reed's, who was Pearl's aunt, of course, was the one who pushed through the adoption, more out of fear, I think, of what Belle would do to the baby. Pearl didn't have any say, and her aunt had kept a secret what she had done with the baby for decades. And so there was no way for her to check on its welfare or its location just to make sure it was okay. It turned out to be a little girl, and she was put up for adoption in Newton, Kansas. Her new parents named her Flossie Pearl 
after two women they admired. How random is that? So she was actually named after her mother by accident. I'm sorry. This is so bad. Poor Pearl. Poor Flossie Pearl. Poor high school boyfriend. It's all around not good. When Belle was 37, she and Sam were at a Christmas Eve party when Sam saw a man who had shot his horse in the crossfire of an arrest attempt out of the fire pit. Sam and this man shot each other and they both died. Not Merry Christmas. She quickly married a fourth time to a young man 14 years younger than she, who she could control, who was pressured to change his name to Jim July Star. Belle wasn't going to change her name. The Belle Star name has currency, especially for her son, Eddie, who used his mom as a perpetual get-out-of-jail-free card for all of his stealing and assorted criminal activities. She was always disappointed in him, and I'm not sure what she expected, given that since he was nine years old, he'd been surrounded by the worst possible examples of upstanding behavior. As far as he knew, men shot other men. They stole horses. They took money from trains. I really don't know what she expected. A few years after her last marriage, Belle was riding back home from a visit to a friend. And as she turned a corner, boom, she was shot right off of her horse from behind and landed face down in the mud. Her killer, as evidenced by the tracks in the mud, walked up to her and shot her again in the face on the ground. Belle Starr, the legend bandit queen of the wild west was dead it says something about the way you live your life that there was a world full of suspects it took some time to sort this out and there are four main suspects even now that i'm kind of catching in the books that i'm reading number one a man named watson neighbor to the people she was visiting who she'd once threatened to turn in for his warrant for a murder charge in florida he maintained his innocence he didn't have the right kind of gun that had shot her. Number two, Jim July himself, as a reality, the husband's always a suspect. He believed it was Watson and desperately tried to prove it. He had an alibi. He was 60 miles away when it happened. Someone in town once swore that Jim July had offered him $200 to kill his wife. And when the man said, no way, Jim was supposed to have said something like, I'll save the money, do it myself, and blow all that money on whiskey and celebration. But he really did struggle for the conviction of suspect number one, kind of for the rest of his, spoiler alert, short remainder of his life. History doesn't seem to think it was the husband. Number three, a man named Middleton, with whom Belle supposedly had an affair, maybe, ended up dead for real, and one of his relatives took revenge, okay? But number four, Belle's own son, Eddie, who she had just whipped bloody for taking her favorite horse and wrecking her up after she just refused letting him take it. Just like a teenager with a car trying to impress the girls. Evidently, at the doctor's office, when he was being treated for all his wounds, he had threatened to kill his mother. And there's a history of Belle physically abusing her son. This might have just been the straw that broke the camel's back. Of course, there might be any number of other people. We'll probably never know. It's one of the great unsolved mysteries of the Wild West. Belle Starr was buried near her cabin at Younger's Bend with the following poem on her headstone. Shed not for her the bitter tear, nor give thee heart to vain regret. Tis but the casket that lies here, the gem that filled it sparkles yet. 
grave robbers stole all of the actual gems that she was wearing. All her jewelry was stolen and stole her favorite gun that she was buried with within weeks of her being buried. So many people coming to pay homage chipped off pieces of her white marble headstone that it ultimately had to be replaced with a concrete one, but not till 2011. It's located kind of in the wilderness at Lake Eufaula, Oklahoma, and we'll give you a link if you want to see it. And that is the end of Belle Starr's colorful, violent life. But as the press got a hold of her story and spun the wildest, most sell-the-paper stories, her fame expanded from merely being the most famous woman in Indian territory to truly being the bandit queen of the Wild West in fiction. Perhaps she'd really be gratified by that, actually. A quick follow-up on what happened to Belle's children, Eddie, who I personally think was the one that killed his mother went through some troubled years on the wrong side of the law before he was actually made a deputy U.S. marshal. I actually have a great-grandfather that alternated between bootlegger and marshal, so I'm very familiar with that both-sides-of-the-coin type of man. He, Eddie, was shot and killed in the line of duty as a U.S. marshal. Pearl, who was only 21 when her mother was killed, and also agreed with me that her brother killed their mother, became a prostitute. She didn't have too much choice in those times and in that place. And later she parlayed that into being a madam with several houses of negotiable affection of her own. It's important to note that she was able to be reunited with her stolen first daughter before she died. She found the baby and was able to reconnect. And it is only through that lost and found granddaughter that Belle Star has living descendants today. As for media, how about this for a couple of books? Star Tracks, Bell and Pearl Star by Philip W. Steele is an easy read, relatively short, and goes more into Pearl's life than any of the other books. And also, I'm not sure if this is awesome, has a list of Bell Star's living descendants. I am not going to stalk them. The end. Also, Belle Star the Bandit Queen by Burton Rasco likes to take apart the various mythologies that have grown up around the legend of Belle Star. I recommend that if you'd like to fall down that rabbit hole. And the thing that got me started on Belle Star in the first place, a book I got last Christmas called Bad Girls by Jan Stradling, uh, who also include the likes of Empress Suchi, who we already covered about, Imelda Marcos, and uh, of course, Belle Star. As to movies, there is a 1941 movie starring Gene Tierney, who doesn't look anything like Belle Star, but you know, when has that ever stopped Hollywood? Um, it is surprisingly not politically correct, given that it is narrated by a slave who travels with Belle Star. Curious. Um, it is worth a look. Anyway, it's to be found on Turner Classic Movies, typically. There is a 1980 adaptation starring Elizabeth Montgomery, who is popping up everywhere. I didn't realize she had such a big career in historically based movies. We also saw her in a Lizzie Borden adaptation, as I recall. Anyway, she plays a curiously emotionless Belle Star. So honestly, I think that the field is ripe for a modern adaptation. I hope somebody with the power is listening to this show because man, are we unearthing some gems. As far as I can tell, no one has covered Bell Star on Drunk History, though it is becoming increasingly hard to search for the subjects that they have covered. So Derek Waters, if you are listening, I would love to come on and talk about Bell Star. There's a lot to talk about and I think it would be very appropriate to talk about while inebriated. <laughs> 
And other than the links that I provided you with earlier in the show, I just want to leave you with one other link. I found a place that holds a bunch of slave interviews from Missouri that were given by slaves in their 80s and 90s, significantly later than this time period. But the whole time Bellstar was living in Missouri, of course, there was a whole other perspective that was not really being explored. It only has a very sideways connection to the story. But anyway, that's a particular rabbit hole that I fell down. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, the site formerly known as iTunes. Don't forget to check out the Pinterest boards. Bellstar is going to have her own and Calamity Jane will have her own and those should be live very quickly. And in closing, I just want to leave you with another little story. I can't emphasize enough how attractive she was and how powerful her personality was. Outlaws loved her. Outlaws respected her or feared her. Even her biggest opponent, the hanging judge himself, once appeared with her in a play in which she, I think is so hilarious, pretended to rob a stagecoach and he was one of the victims that handed her a pocket watch. There's just something about her personality that people could not resist when it was in the room. So maybe underneath all the folklore and the cockamamie stories, there is more truth to the story of the bandit queen of the Wild West than we give it credit for. Belle was, in her life, as well as in her fictional afterlife, a true star. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. And at this point, I guess I get to say it. Thanks for listening. Bye! (laughs) 